Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Fear of Death Drives a Venture Capitalist, by Gregory Zuckerman. Then an article by Joseph de Avila, Is Reclining Your Upright Seat Upright Behavior or Just Rude? Alex Janin follows with an article, Stand Outside for Health. Then Holman Jenkins Jr. wrote, Do We Understand COVID Yet? Part 2. We'll follow that up with an article by Joe Queenan, New Research on Mice Will Make Cats Jobs Harder. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Fear of Death Drives a Venture Capitalist. The investment firm Robert Nelson, co-founded in 1986, Arch Venture Partners, has racked up billions in profits from early stakes in companies developing methods to detect and treat cancer and other diseases. In his personal life, Nelson, 60 years old, downs a daily cocktail of almost a dozen different drugs, including rapamycin, metformin, taurine, and nicotinamide mononucleotide, all of which he says helps prevent illness and promote longevity. Nelson has a full-body MRI every six months, sees a dermatologist every three months, and has annual cancer blood tests to detect cancer. At his home in the Rocky Mountains, he works out in an electric suit that he says emits low-frequency impulses to build muscle and improve health. I know I will get cancer, I just want to catch it early, said Nelson, who says an MRI several years ago has already identified thyroid cancer at an early stage. He has seen family members die of the disease. Bob has a big fear of death, said his wife, Ellen Hennecke. Nelson's latest and largest investment, several hundred million dollars, he said, is in a company attempting something even more ambitious than aiding health and longevity. Altos Labs, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Diego, and Cambridge, UK, is working on ways to rejuvenate cells to eliminate disease, an approach called epigenetic reprogramming. Nelson and Altos founders believe they can turn the clock back on aging cells to restore functions characteristic of younger cells. Arch is the largest institutional investor in Altos, which already has $3 billion of committed investments, likely making it the biotech industry best-funded startup on record. Nelson is, is characteristically unrestrained when discussing Altos prospects. Epigenetic reprogramming is the biggest thing in healthcare in 100 years, or ever, he said. We will clearly live much healthier and longer lives if this works. That's a huge if. Cellular rejuvenation has yet to be proven effective as a treatment. 
So far, the only data Altos and others in field have produced is in mice, suggesting they are a long way from rolling out any products. Skeptics doubt cells can be reprogrammed to ward off age-related illnesses. Nelson realizes Altos faces imposing obstacles. The big question is, will this work in humans, Nelson acknowledges. At first blush, it seems too good to be true. Nelson favors designer jeans and black t-shirts, looking more like an upscale bike messenger than a deep-pocketed investor. He doesn't hold a medical degree and never worked in a lab. A native of Walla Walla, Washington, Nelson studied biology and economics at the University of Puget Sound before getting an MBA at the University of Chicago. His approach to building Altos is the same as as with past investments. Identify leading scientists with ambitious ideas and back them with huge checks and other support. Cool happens things when you put scientists together, he said. Then Nelson prods them to make progress. He sends a text almost every day, chat question, or need to talk, said Richard Klausner, a successful biotech entrepreneur who was Alto's chief scientist and developed the idea behind the company with investor Yuri Milner. Then I'll call him and he texts, can't talk. Sometimes Nelson sends company founders more urgent messages, such as DNFIU, do not F it up. His manic energy can lead to confrontations. Nelson drives his GMC Yukon so aggressively that some friends avoid riding with him. He has started fights with supermarket customers who resisted using plastic bags. I hate plastic bag bans because the assumption that they are better for the environment than paper is flawed and I am grown up enough to not have the government choose my bag for me, Nelson said. Founders of companies Nelson invests in say he is easily distracted and spends a lot of time staring at his phone. But they have learned to appreciate his energy, enthusiasm, and judgment, especially in difficult situations. Bob isn't a scientist, but he has fantastic intuition, makes decisions fast, and is a terrific partner in a crisis. He always stays calm, Klausner said. Taking cells back to their youthful, healthier state long captured the imagination of scientists, but seemed unlikely. Then a breakthrough paper published back in 2006 by Japanese scientist Shinya Yamakana and a colleague showed mature skin cells of mice could be reprogrammed into primordial immature stem cells called induced pluripotent stem cells, in effect resetting their molecular clocks. Yamanaka, who later shared a Nobel Prize for work in this area, is an advisor to Altos. In 2016, Spanish biochemist Juan Carlos Impezua Belmonte, Altos' founding scientist, showed how the age of cells could be reverted without changing their genome and identity. His work demonstrated the potential for toggling between the old and young states of cells, the basis for Altos' effort to rejuvenate cells. 
If we can turn the clock back so cells are healthy and resilient, you can reverse disease, Klausner said. But there is limited evidence cellular rejuvenation can be done safely or that it can be an effective way to combat disease or reverse the effects of aging. Some scientists are downright dismissive of the idea. Dr. Richard A. Miller, a professor of pathology at the University of Michigan, who said he hasn't followed Altos efforts, argues that it is simplistic and misguided to explain illness as the result of cells getting older. In any aging body, cells divide, die, are replaced and changed, he noted. So it is unclear if reprogramming cells can ward off sickness, even if it could be done successfully and safely, he says. Aging is something that happens to bodies, not to cells, Miller said. The reprogramming idea seems to be a shortcut to try to make cells younger in the hopes that this will somehow fix everything. There's no evidence this will work. Others say the approach has both potential and enormous risk. Reprogramming technology is powerful, and it works in cells, but when you do it in animals, it's more of a challenge, so an actual product or therapy will be tough, said Paul Kofner, a stem cell researcher at the University of California at Davis. You can get cells to be younger, but if you get it just a little wrong, you can't create tumors. And now, is reclining your airplane seat upright behavior or just rude? Sharon Snyder paid for a ticket for her overnight flight to Germany, so the way she saw it, she had every right to tip back her seat. The passenger behind her apparently didn't agree and began whacking the seat back. Snyder used hand motions to try to show the woman, who didn't speak English, that she, too, could recline to create more space. Snyder eventually had to call a flight attendant. At that point, I was upset. You're not the chair lean back police, said Snyder, a 56-year-old from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, about her fellow passenger. You're not going to make my eight-hour flight miserable. Commercial airlines equip most planes with reclining seats, so passengers are entitled to tip them back. Yet few aspects of air travel spur so many gripes. Surveys show the public is split on the practice. Reclining advocates say the seats tilt back, so flyers should be free to do it. Anti-recliners said it spoils travel for other passengers in an already cramped environment. Up for debate, who owns those precious few inches? the seat that is reclining or the seat it is reclining into. I am 100% against it, said Nick Lakovic, 67, a semi-retired engineering consultant from Palm Springs, California. I never do it. I think it should be banned as a safety issue. No way, said Rhonda Clark, 55, from Lufkin, Texas. I believe that if you paid for the seat, you are allowed to recline it, she said. I tend not to recline personally, but I am not offended if the person in front of me does. Janet Vukovic, 73, said the issue boils down to inconveniencing other passengers. Your rights stop when my rights are not fulfilled, said Vukovic from Pittsburgh. 
You're leaning back, and I can't even get out of my seat because you're in my lap. Among the thousands of complaints about airline seats that have flooded into the Federal Aviation Administration, many call for the government to intervene on reclining. Some have said airlines shouldn't be allowed to install seats with a recline button. In a recent survey of 1,100 Americans by travel website The Vacationer, 46% said it is rude to fully recline and that they don't recline. Some 28% said it was rude and they would politely ask if it was okay before reclining. And 23% said it wasn't rude. Michael Greesons, 46, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, said he likes to fly Spirit Airlines because the seats don't recline. I'm not going to be someone who's just yelling, going to yell at the person ahead of me, he said. I'll just be inwardly fuming. In 2019, to improve flyer experience, Delta Airlines reduced the reclining span by two inches on some planes on business routes. An airline spokesperson said it had no meaningful impact on customer satisfaction, so the carrier decided against doing so with the rest of its fleet. Delta Chief Executive Ed Bastian has said he doesn't recline, but believes people have the right to do so. Columbia Law School professor Michael Heller has actually weighed in on the issue in the book Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, co-written with James Salzman of the UCLA School of Law. Disputes arise, he said, because both passengers think they have some ownership claim on the space. The person in front controls the button, and the person behind controls the space at first, when seats have to be upright and has the tray table. In reality, he said, neither passenger owns that space. It's the airlines. The ambiguity lets them sell that space twice on every seat on every flight, he said. Airlines offload the conflict onto the passengers, who mostly resolve it using good manners and politeness. Brett Wilmot, Associate Director of the Ethics Program at Villanova University, said that as an ethical matter, there is no right or wrong on the question. When passengers buy tickets, they enter into an agreement with airlines giving them rights to do certain things, including tipping back. But since flyers share space with many others, he said, in the interest of creating the best experience for the most, they might not want to take full advantage of their rights. As an ethicist, I think both of those views are important to consider, he said. Andrew Habert, who is 61 and six foot seven, said he often worries that the person in front of him is going to whack him in the knees if they recline too rapidly. He said he doesn't recline out of consideration of the person behind him. Reclining does not change the comfort level for me, he said. It's horrible no matter what. Steve Brown, 62, who has traveled to 57 countries, said he gets annoyed when people in front of him recline. On a flight in October from Georgia to Baku, he said, a short man in the exit row in front of him reclined. I couldn't believe it, he said. He had the right, though. He paid the money for his flight, but I was upset internally. 
Kirkland Delaney, 63, said people shouldn't have to ask for permission. Before she tips back, she said, she always looks behind her to check the passenger's age and size. She tries to be careful because she never knows what will spark a fight these days. If there is a flight delay, I'm not touching that button, Delaney said. Everyone is on heightened alert and very sensitive to anything. So why aggravate anyone? Why go there? It's not worth it. And now, Alex Janin, stand outside for health. When Sarah Jean Meyer got a text from her mom that said, I have a surprise for you, she assumed it would be a free bubble tea. Instead, her mother showed up with a roll of foil tape, a long copper pipe, an electrical wire, and a rod clamp. They were all supplies required to ground Meyer's bed. Grounding is what proponents call the process of connecting to the Earth's natural electric charge, often by physically touching it or connecting to the grounding systems built into most United States homes. The wellness practice is gaining, well, ground among alternative health fans who claim it cures headaches, helps them sleep, and reduces inflammation. Some go basic by simply standing barefoot in their yards. Others try more complicated do-it-yourself approaches to maximize time spent grounding, even while indoors. Luis Rios, a pilot based in Los Angeles, says grounding, also known as earthing, helps ease joint pain in his knees after long flights. He mostly does it outdoors, with his feet touching the ground, though it can be difficult to find places to hike or travel barefoot at travel destinations. During a recent trip to Savannah, Georgia, he stood in a park across from a stretch of restaurants and businesses on a tree with an exposed route while two tour buses drove by. I felt like I was kind of the main attraction. They were looking at me like, what is this guy doing, says Rios 58. I feel like an oddball, but if it works, it works. Grounding merchandise proliferates, and in July 2023, TikTok searches for the hashtags grounding had 529 views, and hashtag Earthlink, which has 163 million views, reached peak popularity from the previous three years. Some pro athletes did grounding. Baseball player Spencer Turnbull said in a 2021 Major League Baseball talk show interview that the practice helps him get loose, focused, and just kind of wakes me up. Camrever Bate, 30, a model and freelance graphic designer in New York, purchased a $30 earthing mat which arrived with a cable to plug into the bottom hole of any three-pronged outlet. The bottom or grounding hole connects to a wire that runs into a service panel that connects to the ground. These wires are installed around most newer buildings to prevent electric surges. Earthing researchers, some of whom have connections to companies that sell products such as yoga mats and bedsheets, say the habit can reduce oxidative stress, a condition linked to various conditions. It does so, they contend, 
by dissipating static electricity buildup in the body and sinking with the Earth's natural negative electric charge. We surmise, but don't have direct research, that earthing will help slow the aging process, says Gadian Chevalier, director of the nonprofit Earthing Institute, which funds research and education about earthing and grounding. Most traditional doctors and scientists say the benefits of grounding aren't grounded in evidence. Dozens of studies have popped up on the subject, but many have limitations including small sample sizes, self-reported, or subjective outcomes and conflicts of interest. At the most basic physics level, a fifth grader should be able to debunk this, says Dr. Stephen Novella, a neurologist at the Yale School of Medicine and editor of the website Science-Based Medicine. Like many adapters of earthling, sometimes dubbed earthers, who hoped the practice will relieve chronic pain, Meyer hoped her husband would find some relief from rheumatoid arthritis when she tried grounding a bed. She laid out a grid of the tin tape on the mattress pad, popped out her bedroom window screen to run the wire through it, hammered the copper ride into the ground outside, and attached the strip wire to the clamp. It's a little crazy. I was curious what my neighbors might think if they see us out there pounding a hole into the ground, says Meyer, 35, a stay-at-home mom in Cottage Grove, Minnesota. I just kept telling myself, if it works, great, and if it doesn't, we tried. Grounding the bed did not dissipate her husband's pain, she said, but they both generally slept better despite some poking and prodding from the metallic tape. Eventually, she ordered two earthing mats from Amazon to replace the homespun system. Many earthers concede the placebo effect could be at play in health improvements they experience. Stress reduction as a result of spending more time away from screens or meditating, as some earthers do outside or on earthing mats, can have benefits, doctors say and connection to nature likely accounts for some benefits people say they experience after earthing outdoors, says Brent Bauer, who directs Mayo Clinic's Complementary and Integrative Medicine program. Despite a lack of solid scientific evidence, even skeptics largely concede, what is the risk in trying? Not zero, websites that sell grounding products that plug into wall outlets one uses to disconnect their devices during lightning and thunderstorms to protect against electrical surges. Not everyone earths unscathed. Thomas Isham, 47, chief executive of a psychiatry biotechnology company in San Diego, California, walks 10,000 barefoot steps almost every day as part of his earthing routine. He has built up some calluses but they weren't enough to protect him one day last month. About halfway through, just as he started to feel the earthing energy, he says, he stepped on a bee. I said a couple of bad words to myself. Despite the sing, sting, Ikem is still walking barefoot most mornings. He says it helps him feel more energized, more creative, and put him in a better mood. The placebo effect, if it does something good for you, then who cares? 
And now, do we understand COVID yet? Part two. Each technological age renews the fight over speech infringement. If given an inch, government censors inevitably take a mile. In July, pushback came when a federal court issued a temporary injunction against federal bureaucrats leaning on social media companies. The decision takes particular trouble to note the bureaucracy's campaign to silence dissenters to its COVID policies. Many of those policies are now seen to have been ill-advised. A plaintiff in a lawsuit, Stanford's Dr. J. Bhattacharya, recently made an arresting admission in an interview with the Hoover Institution. Dr. Bhattacharya was co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration that still vilified October 2020 challenge to COVID lockdowns. He says the declaration was the least original thing I ever worked on in my entire life. This rang some bells with me. In late January and early February 2020, I channeled what experts were thinking about the then-novel coronavirus. Most infections were mild or even asymptomatic and weren't being properly counted. The virus was likely already rampant in places it wasn't yet detected, like New York City. It couldn't be stopped at a cost a sane humanity would be willing to pay. It was also far less deadly than was being reported. But then things turned weird. This balanced assessment, roughly universal among experts, was shelved in a bandwagon frenzy that deserves more attention than it's gotten. Dr. Anthony Fauci, in a recent interview with the New York Times, insists it wasn't him but politicians who opted for lockdowns and school closures. His remarks, though widely panned, provide part of the answer. Voters and elected officials didn't want realism in handling COVID. They wanted a fantasy about the virus being defeated. A media cacophony treated every infection and death as a political failure. Politicians became keen to appease elderly voters, though it's far from clear the elderly benefited from the steps politicians started taking. Never mind, officials increasingly had every incentive to take extreme measures regardless of benefit or cost. And yet realism was also available if we wanted it. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from day one explained that most Americans would encounter the virus in a matter of months. This advice was eventually scrubbed from the CDC website, perhaps because this column mentioned it too many times, but it continued to appear on other government websites, including those of the United States military. Our early inklings proved correct. COVID's defining feature wasn't lethality, but speed and ease of spread. COVID's threat to the social order lay primarily in the number of cases that might hit medical providers at the same time. Looking back, the explosions in Wunan, northern Italy, and New York City seem best explained by a virus rampant in populations that hadn't yet been warned about its existence and by medical providers accidentally helping to transmit it to the most vulnerable. 
our steps did not significantly impede its spread, even as our efforts miraculously quashed the annual flu. In year two, despite vaccination, as many Americans died as in year one, yet further health care meltdowns were avoided. Vaccines clearly save lives. If lockdowns and masking mandates contributed by keeping people alive until they could be vaccinated, though, the effort is hard to sort out from the voluntary measures an informed public would have taken anyway. Meanwhile, bans on elective medical procedures, forced unemployment, school closures, and other extreme measures produce their own toll. Among the 1.1 million Americans who died of COVID, their average age was 74 and they lost 12 years of life. Nobody yet knows the total years lost to younger people due to excess deaths from substance abuse, suicide, homicide, accidents, lack of cancer screening, and other non-COVID causes. Only with the arrival of the Biden administration did it become expedient to acknowledge a truth known from the start. The virus was something we would have to live with, not defeat with indiscriminate social and economic curbs. This is where the decision of United States District Judge Terry Dowdy sheds light. His detailed recounting shows a Washington energetic in protecting Americans from COVID opinions expertise and claims that conflicted with its own, at a time when it served politicians to show they were trying to save Americans from encountering a virus that couldn't be avoided. When government has a message to deliver, especially when the political stakes are high, it won't be content just to push its own message. It will try to silence others. Fighting back will always be necessary. The only surprise in our age is how thoroughly the liberal position has become the pro-censorship position. And now, Joe Queenan's new research on mice will make cats' jobs harder. Just when you thought that scientists might be lying down on the job, or at least taking August off, Researchers at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London have figured out a way to reverse hearing loss in mice. At first glance, this seems like a really great idea, as it could conceivably help scientists develop techniques to restore hearing loss in humans. Conceivably. Like a long, long, long time in the future the way hydrogen fuel may one day replace fossil fuels to power our cars. I like mice as much as the next guy, and I'm grateful to them for the way the furry little critters have bailed us out of some pretty tight spots in the past. Experiments on mice have taught us a lot about artificial sweeteners, cocaine, antidepressants, and the effects of light on mood changes. Throughout the course of human history, Mice have been there for us in a way that snakes, frogs, and hornets have never been. Just forget about raccoons, skunks, and weasels. That said, auricularly enhanced mice are not an unqualified blessing. What worries me most about reversing hearing loss in rodents is that it really doesn't help human beings in the here and now. Not only does it mean that mice will be able to tell when human beings have gone to bed 
and can immediately start cavorting merrily in the kitchen without fear of getting stomped or on smacked by a broom, it means that it will be much easier for them to hear the cat coming. This really isn't fair to cats who can't do their job properly if they can't keep the mice under control. Stealth has long been one of the cat's most powerful weapons against its rodent nemesis, but no amount of stealth is equal to the challenge posed by enhanced hearing mice. Cats are going to fall way down humanity's pest control depth chart. They would be like anteaters that suddenly can't catch up with their prey because scientists figured out a way to make ants run faster. This is a classic case of scientists cavalierly disrupting the natural world without regard to the consequences. It's more or less what Mary Shelley warned about in Frankenstein. If you help mice hear better, aren't you obliged to take countervailing steps to make cats tread more quietly so that they can still sneak up on the mice? Because if cats can no longer sneak up on mice, what's the point of having them? It's not like they're especially great pets. Looking on the positive side, this is one of the few instances in scientific history where researchers have actually done something nice for mice. Mice and their cousin, far less characteristic cousins, rats, are always being subjected to horrible experiments to see how they will respond to various stimuli. They are fed drugs that totally stress them out. They are forced to participate in inane, repetitive rituals involving mazes and treadmills. They are subjected to weird types of surgery and just generally mistreated in the lab. So having scientists do them a solid by improving their hearing certainly makes a change. Still, scientists are venturing onto the slippery slope when they start conducting experiments of this nature. Scientists aren't supposed to make sharks smarter or tigers faster or to retrofit wasps with longer, more deadly stingers. Scientists aren't supposed to help boa constrictors break down amino acids so that they can better digest their food, which is a roundabout way of saying that mice were just fine the way they were before scientists got into the act and upset the apple cart. Mice with better hearing are like dogs with sharper teeth. No thank you. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.